Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of those who gave their lives so that we could enjoy the freedoms that we have today, the, the ability to gather together in your name, to worship you however, wherever, whenever we want. The life that we have today is, is due to the sacrifice of many. Those who follow your leading of service and sacrifice and humility, giving themselves up for one another. Lord, you gave us that example, and I praise you. And I ask your blessing on those families that are affected because someone in their family made that sacrifice on behalf of others. Others who, some would reject that sacrifice. Some would, would not want it. Some would ridicule it, but you gave that sacrifice for all so that all could live in freedom. Lord, we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ah, it's a tough segue for that. That is, this is a holiday that is always difficult for me. And I had Pastor Gabe talk about it, and we did the movie because I can't get through talking about it <laughs> without starting to ball. So uh, we're going to move into our message. Um, we are in, um, still in Mark. We're just starting out in chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark. And, uh, and what a great Jesus the Servant Messiah when we talk about on a holiday, uh, a Memorial Day like this, um, remembering the sacrifice. Jesus modeled that service and humility. It wasn't about um, elevating himself. It wasn't about any sort of prideful things. He did it. He served because that's who he was. And he taught us that. And that's what we're trying to learn as we go through the gospel of Mark. And his disciples, you have to think about his disciples being so thick-headed and if you were writing a book or doing a movie on trying to um, make the disciples into some sort of heroes, you would certainly not probably write it the way the Gospel of Mark does. Because every chance they get to be thick-headed and stubborn and just not get it, that's what they do. But isn't that a lot like us? So that's reality, right? No matter how many times you hear a message, no matter how many times you read a scripture or the Holy Spirit speaks to you, we will still generally as human beings find a way to mess it up. So we need to hear it again and again and again. And thankfully, we have the Word of God written down that we can refer to. And then we have that Word inside of us, that Word spoken directly to our spirit through the Holy Spirit that helps us to navigate those things, honestly, in a way today that the disciples couldn't. The disciples at this time, their hearts hadn't been open to understanding the scriptures. That wouldn't happen until later. So we can look at them and kind of go like, man, you guys were, you just weren't all that bright. But they didn't have the advantages that we have. So we have to give them that grace. But that being said, let's look at what they're going through here. If you missed any of our last messages, go back, check them out on our archives. It's important when we do a teaching on this, especially where we're going to be today, but always to look at Scripture in context. Don't ever just pull out a, one particular verse, one particular, uh, even a chapter, and just say, I'm going to base all my theology on that. So much, um, frankly, false teaching, but in some cases, well-meaning, but error-filled teaching comes from pulling out particular Scriptures to make them fit things. 
We always need to look at it in context, and that's, I think, it's especially important today, and I'll show you why. But let's go back just one step. If you remember, Jesus and the disciples traveling around, they had been up at Caesarea Philippi, uh, Mount Hermon. They had witnessed the transfiguration of Christ, uh, at least three of them had. And then they came down from that mountain, probably expecting some sort of like, okay, everything's fresh, everything's new, let's go do ministry in a different way. And they come back immediately to disciples bickering among each other. Then they leave, and during the trip, as they're walking to their next stop, the disciples are bickering with one another. Who's the greatest? Who's the smartest? Who's Jesus' favorite? And they're just doing nothing but just arguing back and forth with them. Who had the right doctrine? Who could perform miracles and who couldn't? Who had the right to and who didn't? Jesus, though, if you remember, is teaching them that causing someone who is new in their faith to stumble because of your prideful arguing with one another, there's a penalty for that. Remember what he said the penalty was? Having a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the ocean. He even then goes further and said, if your hand is causing all this problem, cut it off. If your feet are causing this problem, cut them off. If your eyes are, gouge them out because it'd be better for you to lose an eye, lose a limb, than to be thrown into hell. Remember, he specifically calls it Gehenna and says, that's the result. You should not cause someone who is new in their, new or not, but if you cause them to fail or stumble in their faith, that's a problem. And that's the context of this whole teaching that we're going through. Number one, serve in humility. Serve in unity. Serve in peace. Stop arguing with one another because everybody's watching us argue with one another and they're saying, we're no different. We're no better than anyone else because even we can't decide on what we believe. That's the whole point of this teaching that he's been going through. Jesus says, look, you guys, you're supposed to be salt of the earth, but your pride and your judgment and your, and your arguing behavior is not the way to stay salty. Neither, though, is ignoring God's word. Because you can be, you can be non-confrontational and just say, look, whatever you want to believe, just believe whatever you want to believe as long as it makes you happy. That's not the way to stay salty either. That might avoid conflict, but that's not the way for the power of the word of God to get out there. If we ignore God's word and we change that or we trade that for what passes as worldly wisdom these days, that's not going to accomplish what Jesus wants it to accomplish. So we're going into this teaching. Full disclosure, this particular message, this particular section of Scripture is very, very personal to me um, for a number of reasons. First and foremost, probably, some of you know, some of you don't, um, about 20 years ago, I went through a divorce. About 22, I think, if my math is right, Pastor Gabe went through a divorce. Um, it, neither one of them was our choosing. It kind of was thrust upon us. Um, but since then, I have had, and she has had, people approach us directly and say, you shouldn't be in ministry because you have divorced and remarried. And Scripture says that you are no longer good for anything. I'm like, really? Does Scripture say that? 
But what it's caused is a lot of people to harden their hearts against hearing anything that I had to say because of that background. I have seen, and not only me, that's personal for me, but I've seen families torn apart because of their interpretation of this section of Scripture. I have seen individuals live their lives in shame over their interpretation of this particular Scripture. I've seen people condemned for choices they made or choices that someone else made on their behalf and they didn't have a say in. I've seen so much more death and judgment and shame come from the various interpretations of this scripture than the light and the life and the redemption that Jesus offers. And it shouldn't be that way. It's probably 99% death and judgment and condemnation and maybe, if I'm being generous, 1% light that comes from the different teachings I've heard. And I'm trying, I can't soft pedal it. I can't change what Scripture says, nor do I want to. The Scripture says what it says, and it's my job to interpret it. Okay, so regardless of how I would like it to turn out, it says what it says. And so I'm going to share that with you today. So we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and the, and the topic is adultery and divorce. That's the topic. It's a difficult topic. We're going to make some sense of it, though. We're going to make sense of it in context. We're not going to pull out one scripture and base our entire theology on that. We're going to teach it in context because that's how it was meant to be taught. Mark 10, verse 1. Setting out from there, leaving the area they were at, Jesus went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, Crowds gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he once more began to teach them. So this area that they're going to is known as Perea. Let me show you a map. Again, those visual kind of learners, I know it's kind of a, kind of a childish sort of map, but they were clear up north, Caesarea Philippi, that's where they were, where the transfiguration happened. Then they kind of traveled back down towards the Sea of Galilee. Ultimately, they're heading to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's clear down here. And they're heading down to Jerusalem, but they decide that the route they're going to take is going to go through the Decapolis and down here through Perea. They're going to be on the east side of the Jordan River, which generally is considered kind of heathen territory. It's certainly more predominance of Gentiles than Jews, but there is still a mix there. So they're heading down through Perea. There's no accident There's no accident in Scripture, and there's no accident in the routes and the places that Jesus decides that he's going to take when he's traveling around. And this is no different. Perea, if you remember the teaching that we did a long time ago, Mark chapter 6, I think we talked about it mostly. Um, Perea was governed by Herod Antipas. If you remember Herod, the teachings on the various Herods and, and the brothers and all the dynamics that went on there, Herod Antipas, sometimes called Herod the Tetrarch, um, he's the one who had arrested and imprisoned John the Baptist and ultimately beheaded John the Baptist. Remember that? And you remember why he did it? Because of his very outspoken views on adultery. So it's no mistake that this section happens right there. Remember, he was specifically pointing out, okay, it's wrong. Number one, you married your niece. Number two, you stole your niece from your brother. And then on and on and on, a a whole litany of mistakes that Herod had made. And John the Baptist called him out for it, 
That's why he was beheaded. But so that's the scene. That's where we are. Mark 10, 2. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus. Okay, so Pharisees, some of them were probably following him along. Some might have been in that region already. They came up to Jesus testing him and began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, if you read the parallel account in Matthew 19, Matthew adds the phrase, for any reason at all. Let me explain that to you. You might read that. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? You might think he's trying to say, so you're saying that there should ever never be a reason for a man to divorce his wife. It's actually just the opposite. They're saying for any reason, any and every reason. That's what they're asking. And it's important, and I'll tell you why it's important here in a minute. Because this was partially an attempt to trap Jesus, which they were constantly trying to do, get Jesus to either, either contradict himself or commit heresy in his teaching, or some sort of false teaching, they're trying to trap him. But in our minds, in my mind anyway, I always kind of consider the Pharisees being this homogenous block of like-minded people who all agree on the same doctrine, right? That's not exactly what they were, though. There were two very distinct schools of thought among Pharisees, and they argued constantly and debated constantly. So partially they're trying to get Jesus to weigh in on this debate they're having, and whichever way Jesus weighs in, the other side is going to be angry because he sided with them. So they're trying to trap him, but they're also trying to get him to weigh in on this debate they're having internally. That's the mindset we need to have when we listen to the teaching that Jesus is about to do here. Now, there's so much more going on Than meets the eye. Again, this idea of the Pharisees being this one like-minded group, they were absolutely not. And the first century witnesses to this would have known that very well. We read that and it just doesn't even occur to us that there'd be an issue. But in reality, the witnesses here, the Pharisees, the people that were hearing the teaching of Jesus at this time would have very well known the dynamic that was going on here. Here's what was happening. Pharisees, being generally very well educated, very well versed in Scripture, understanding Torah, um, they were opinionated, they were very full of their opinion, and when you get a group of people around who all possess those traits, harmony is generally not something that is, is very common. And so they were constantly arguing and bickering, bickering with each other, even internally. But here's why. In a hundred years or so before Jesus, the Pharisees as a group had fractured into two pretty distinct camps. Those of you who have been watching the Chosen series might have seen a glimpse of this between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that if you haven't seen it. Disciples of Rabbi Hillel were much more liberal, let's just say. Rabbi Hillel was actually born in Babylon um, about, give or take, 110 B.C., about 110 or so before Christ. Um, Rabbi Shammai lived in about the time of Christ, give or take. But Rabbi Hillel, let's go to him first. He served as the head of the Sanhedrin, okay, which was the kind of the, we'd call it the Jewish Supreme Court maybe, 
And he was the founder of what was called the House of Hillel, or Bet Hillel, which was a school of Jewish law that taught on Scripture, taught on the Torah from his viewpoint, his vantage point, which was, for him, a relatively broad, and we would use the term lenient, maybe, interpretation of Scripture. Pretty broad and pretty lenient. There'd be a, there's a lot of leeway, a lot of wiggle room in Scripture is, what, is how he would teach it. But Rabbi Shammai, on the other hand, again, lived during the time of Jesus, but he taught a very, very strict interpretation of Scripture. Very strict. There was no wiggle room. There was no black and white. Um, here's, a, here's a picture. Now, this would have been, this is supposed to be the two of them, Hillel on the right, Shammai on, or Hillel on the left, that is, Shammai on the right. Now, Hillel would have had to have been probably 130 years or so old here for this to happen. So probably this scene didn't happen. But it's illustrating the fact that these two well-respected rabbis, um, the older one on the left, the younger one on the right, uh, were, were at odds. And they're trying to convince each other that, that they're correct and eventually just ended up really fracturing into two different camps. Um, the question that I have for you guys, with Rabbi Hillel being very, very broad, very liberal in his interpretation, and then Shammai being very by-the-book, very strict, which one of the two do you think was the most popular in the time of Jesus? You would naturally just think the one who's more liberal, the one who's more loose, kind of anything goes. I'm going to show you here in a minute how actually that led to more, that liberality that they were taking in the law actually led to more death and destruction than a strict interpretation of the law. I'll explain to you how that worked here. Between the two camps, Hillel and Shammai, really there were several different things that they were at odds on, but probably the single biggest thing that they were at odds on was the idea of divorce. Okay, and specifically, according to the Holy Scriptures, what constitutes legal cause for divorce? Okay, that, that was probably their main point of contention. And they were asking Jesus to weigh in on that so that probably they could point at the other camp. Number one, if he disagreed with them, then they would say, well, what does he know? He's just a weird prophet. But if he agreed with you, now all of a sudden, he's a great teacher because he agreed with me. And so that's what they were asking him to weigh in on. And so his response is as a result of them and their internal bickering. And it follows along with what the disciples were doing, bickering among each other. Who's the greatest? Who's the smartest? Who's your favorite, Jesus? And then they're saying, he was healing, but not in your name, or not, not, he's not part of our group, so he can't do that, right? That prideful behavior. And he's pointing at the Pharisees here, saying, you guys are doing just the same thing. You're arguing. And that fracture, that split, had started causing divisions, even among the, the chosen covenant people of God. The Hebrew nation, the Jews, were split down this line, and they're constant bickering. Like, if, if you guys who are supposed to be teaching us the law can't agree, what's our chance of getting it right? So Jesus takes this, and he's going to make it a teaching moment. So their question, in answer to their question uh, about what constitutes a legal divorce, right, 
He answers back, Mark 10.3, and he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? So immediately he's taking it out of the realm of what's your opinion and what's your opinion and which opinion I think is right. He's like, what does scripture say? Side note, that's a great strategy anytime you're trying to discern something, whether it's biblical or not, instead of just debating, let's let's start with what Scripture says and then go from there. That's what Jesus is doing. So start with Scripture. Mark 10.4, they said, their answer, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. Okay? They're not wrong. That's what it said. That's from Deuteronomy. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. But if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away, or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again. For she's been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord. So that's a correct quote of Scripture. That's what Deuteronomy says. That's what Mosaic law says. But their disagreement was not what that says, but their disagreement centered on what constitutes something wrong with her. And whether a broad interpretation or a very strict interpretation is what was getting at here in Mosaic Law. Some translations, depending on yours, when it says a woman has something wrong with her, some say uncleanliness, some say displeasing, some say indecency or lacking modesty. Um, The word, the Hebrew translation of that word uncleanness um, is the definition really is nakedness. It's, It's erva is how it's pronounced. And it just means found nakedness. Now, the two different schools of thought, Rabbi Shammai, remember the more strict interpretation, he understood that that word, that uncleanness or that something wrong with her only meant sexual immorality and that that was the only valid reason for divorce. That's his strict interpretation. Now, on the other hand, Rabbi Hillel understood and taught that something wrong with her meant any sort of indiscretion, any sort of fault, anything that wasn't perfect, even to the point of burning a meal could be cause for that. Um, Maybe just not being as young as you were when we got married, that's another valid cause for divorce. In his mind, it could be almost anything, almost anything. So between those two, this goes against what we normally think. We have the very strict interpretation of the law that says only for sexual immorality. Or we have the very loose and anything goes kind of interpretation of the law that says anything up to burning the toast or naturally aging is cause for divorce. Which one of those two do you think is more graceful and life-giving? The strict interpretation, right? It's one of those things where we can't just say, hey, liberal is better The strict interpretation of the law is actually more life-giving for those who are involved. Mark 10, 5, Jesus said to them, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, 
he wrote you this commandment. So this wasn't a matter of commanding, like, you must send your wife away if she displeases you. He didn't say that at all. But in fact, the reason that Moses wrote this is because in the time, or it was given to Moses, in the time, the custom was that married women had virtually no rights. They were essentially property. Any money that the woman happened to make would go to the husband. Um, She had no say in household affairs or how things went. She had zero rights. And if the husband decided, "Ah, I'm just tired of you, and sends her away, she would have no ability to, to take care of herself. If she was lucky, she could live with family. But other than that, she was pretty much either destined to be a prostitute or be homeless or move in with someone else and be an adulterer. That was kind of her only choices. And so when Moses wrote that, offering her certificate of divorce, this formal certificate actually restored some rights to the woman. So she then had an opportunity to to get a job again or to get married again, actually had an opportunity to have a life beyond that divorce. So they're probably asking Jesus, so, so which is it? Weigh in, Jesus of Nazareth. Tell, me, tell us your wisdom on what this is. And here's his answer. Mark 10, verses 6 through 8 says, But from the beginning of creation, God created them, male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Just about every wedding you've been to, Christian wedding, they've quoted that scripture, right? That's from Genesis 1 and 2. Very common uh, teaching when it comes to marriage. In Matthew 5, now, remember, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Remember when he said that? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Sometimes you look at that word, to fulfill it, that makes it seem like there was something missing from the law. And he applied. That missing thing was grace. So you wouldn't be wrong if you thought that. But really the sense of that word, if you have an NLT version, it actually phrases it really succinctly. It says, I came to accomplish their purpose. So I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill, to accomplish their purpose. I love the way it's phrased right there. So Jesus then, he goes on to fulfill or to to clarify, I guess is a better word, his purpose behind his teaching on divorce and the purpose behind the law on divorce. Mark 10, 9 says, therefore, what God has joined together, no person is to separate. So here's what it all boils down to. Whether it was her fault or his fault or she displeased him or the law says you can for any reason or for no reason, whatever, God's teaching is what God has joined together. No person is to separate. That's what it boils down to. And that viewpoint fits very much more closely with that stricter teaching from Shammai. So now, after giving the Pharisees something else to argue about and and bicker about, Jesus and the disciples, they leave. They find another place to go to, to... kind of soak in that teaching. Mark 10.10, 10, and in the house, the disciples again be question, began questioning him about this. So like asking him, they're probably a little snake bit because remember the last few times they asked him for clarification. He's like, come on guys, when are you going to get this? They were probably a little like, you ask him. I don't want to ask him. 
But he gives them what appears to be on the surface, appears to be a really black and white answer. Here's what he says, Mark 10, verses 11 and 12. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. That's very straightforward. That's Mark in his brevity of words. Matthew, though, adds just this little phrase, and Jesus said it. It's not like it didn't happen, and Matthew just said, let's throw that in there. Matthew 19.9 adds this phrase, except for sexual immorality. Matthew 19.9 adds that. That word immorality translates in the Greek as porneia. That sounds like the root of a word that is a problem in our culture today. What it really means is selling off or surrendering sexual purity. That's what that word translates as. So Jesus is saying the only reason for divorcing is sexual promiscuity. That's the only reason that he's given for this. Now, if we look even further at the Greek, that Greek word for divorce is apluo, and what it means is to release or to send away. But what it is, it's an intentional thing. It's somebody does it to someone else, typically the man to the woman, but they're opening up the possibility of a woman divorcing a man. But they're saying, I'm, I'm done with you. I'm sending you away. That's what a divorce is. It's something that's done to the woman, typically. So to wrap this up and kind of try and make sense of it all, let's look at God's intention for marriage in the first place. Why did God make marriage? Why did he design marriage? Let's go back to that. And to do that, we go back to Genesis, right? Genesis, I think there's two main reasons. Companionship, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, companionship. But the other, and I think the most important for our purposes here in this teaching, is to provide us with an example of our covenant relationship with him. That's what marriage is supposed to be, is a reflection of that relationship with him. It's probably the closest thing on earth that we can come to, to understanding his covenant relationship with us. Paul taught, for a single guy, Paul taught a lot about marriage. I would question where he gets his wisdom if I didn't know that he got it from the Lord directly. But he teaches this about marriage, kind of finishes this thought. When, he, when he's teaching on it, Again, hear it in weddings all the time, Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He's talking about the two becoming one flesh and let, let no one separate what God has joined together. But then he, sa- he says, in case you're confused, I'm teaching about Christ and the church. So what does that mean? It means that the bond of marriage is intended to be a reflection of God's covenant with us. It's intended to be something that helps us understand that. Now, a covenant is very different than a contract. The Pharisees were, in general, treating marriage as a contract. When we got married, you were a good provider. Well, when we got married, you were young and a good cook. And something changed along the way. And therefore, one of the two of us broke the contract, so we're done. I'm sending you away because you're no longer fulfilling your end of it. That's how they were teaching it. Some people today treat marriage like that. 
I'm no longer happy. This is no longer as easy and fun as it was the day we met, the day we got married. So therefore, maybe we should nullify this contract. That is not what marriage is supposed to be. That might be what the secular world tells you, and that's certainly what Satan wants you to think. It's no longer fun. It's no longer easy. So let's just end it. That is not, that is not what marriage is supposed to be. It is a reflection of God's covenant with us. See, we're taught that God actually joins believers together with Christ, actually joins believers together. Genesis tells us in marriage, the two are joined together in one flesh. So we have two individuals who come together and they are joined together as one in one flesh. Even Paul says it's a mystery. So we don't know how exactly that works. But the two are joined together with one flesh, and then the two become one, joined together with Christ as his body. Paul tells us that that one flesh is then joined with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ? Then he says, Shall I take away the parts of Christ and make them parts of a prostitute? Far be it. He's saying... He's saying, you are joined with Christ. You are a part of a holy covenant, joined with him. Should I tear that apart so that one of you can go join with a prostitute? No. Marriage, then, is intended to be a bonding of spirits that's even, even stronger than the bond of blood. Now, that scripture from Genesis, where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He's teaching there that the marriage covenant was designed by God to take precedence over the bond of children, over the bond of family, over the, the, the call of self-indulgence or, or the lure of lust. The covenant of marriage is supposed to be able to withstand that. It's supposed to be able to be an example to those who are watching that that is what a covenant relationship looks like. This isn't a contract easily stepped out of. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't make a contract with us that said, if you do these things the way, the way we've both agreed you should do them, then we're good. But the minute you stop, my covenant is done. Christ didn't make that kind of covenant with us, and we are not to make that kind of covenant with each other. It's designed to be an example of humility and selflessness, honoring others, putting others before yourself in a way that the world may not see, a level of commitment to one another that is far beyond what someone might say you deserve. I can't tell you how many marriage counselings I've done where I hear, I deserve, I deserve this, I deserve that, I deserve more of this, I deserve less of that. As soon as you start saying that, you have entered into a contract mindset, not a covenant. A covenant is a level of commitment that's not dependent on what the other person does or does not do, but on your decision. In a lot of ways, your decision on how you can serve them. That's what Christ did for us. So in order to understand this teaching on, on divorce here, we have to take his teaching in context of the rest of what he is teaching in, in Mark, 
especially the chapters before and after, and in the flow of what he's teaching here, he's teaching that humility and service is what sets you apart from the rest of the world. Humility and service. Love for one another. Remaining undefiled by the things that make you common. So treating life, treating the marriage covenant, treating any of those things the way that the rest of the world would and would say generally that it's okay, it makes you common. And it makes your relationship common. And it makes you, it definitely does not make you salt and light as we're called to be. Jesus taught that during the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5.16, your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Does it say you should live your life in such a way that people pat you on the back and say, good job? No. It says, so that you may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, so the teaching here is not meant to give us loopholes. The Pharisees are looking for either loopholes of why they can or loopholes why they can't break this covenant of marriage. They're looking for those outs. Jesus is not meant to give us, and all of his teaching is, the law says this, but don't be looking for loopholes in the law. So arguing and debating the law, you're missing the heart. It's also not to to condemn those who have already been through a divorce, whether by their own choice or their own actions or not. Sometimes things happen. This is a fallen world. Things happen to people that they don't have a choice on. And it's certainly not to teach that there can be no redemption for those who have been through it, whether by their decision or not. There is always, always redemption. But the life of a disciple of Jesus should be one that is, as much as possible, a reflection of our Creator. As much as possible, we should live our lives. That includes our marriage. That includes our workplace. That includes everything we do. We should do the best that we can to reflect the holiness of our Creator. That's why marriages all over the world, especially Christian marriages, are under demonic attack constantly. Because if your marriage can be broken up and you're a Christian and your marriage failed just like they are and they're not Christians, then what difference is it? Of what value is the covenant that Jesus Christ made with us? Maybe there's nothing special about it at all if there's no difference in the lives of those people who call themselves disciples of Christ. Bad things happen in this fallen world, whether it's a result of your choice or someone else's. We can thank Christ that there's always redemption. There's always redemption. But the question is this. In fact, it's more of a challenge than a question. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of whether you're being done to or you're the one who's, who's doing it or what has happened to you in your life, are you able to live in such a way that lets your light shine before others and lets them see the way that you live is different and then by that gives glory to God? Or do you live your life the way that all the self-help books and marriage books that you find at the store uh, might tell you, like, hey, if it's not fun anymore, life's too short. Thankfully, there's always redemption. 
And that's the point of this teaching. Don't get hung up on the law. Don't be looking for the loophole. I can because of this and I can't because of that. And you should and you shouldn't. What we're looking for here is the life, the life that comes through redemption and the the model of marriage to be a reflection of the covenant that God made with us. Yes, things happen and that gets broken. But his covenant with us will never be broken. It will never be broken. So to the best of our abilities, let's live a life that is glorifying to our Father in heaven. Amen? Hey, let's pray. If you're in a place, if you're in a place where the decision has been thrust upon you, that you either have been or you are going through a divorce that is not of your doing, there is redemption. If you're the one who either has put that decision on someone else, you've made that decision for you as a couple, there can be redemption. It's not God's plan. It's certainly not his first plan, but it doesn't mean that it's death. The way to redemption starts with repentance. And you can pray that right now, and we're going to pray that right now. Whether it's, Father, forgive me for the choices I have made, or Father, help me to see that I'm not broken by the choices that were made for me. We can repent of those decisions we've made and we can stop the enemy's plans right now. No matter where you are on that spectrum, we can defeat the purposes of the enemy. You are not, you are not soiled goods, never again to be good for God's purpose. There is redemption in Christ. Let's pray that. Father, Father, we come before you and, and Lord, whatever we have done to not give you glory, the decisions that we have made that don't give you glory, the decisions that we have made that maybe we made it out of a prideful place or out of a hurt place or those things that were done to us, Lord, help us to give up offense. Help us to set the hurt aside of what was done to us and realize that you will redeem all things for the good of those who trust in you and are called according to your purpose. Your purpose for us is to have a life of abundance, a life with purpose, a life of glorifying you. So the things that have happened to us do not make us useless. Lord, we repent of anything that we are doing that does that, that puts us on the sideline. Help us to see that we are not forever broken, that there is redemption in Christ. But then I want to pray for every, every relationship, every marriage. Maybe you're struggling right now and you're wondering, is there any point in continuing with this, with this torture that we're going through right now? I want you to see that God's plan God's plan is a covenant relationship between two people who love Jesus Christ and their hearts and their souls have been knit together by him and then bonded to Jesus. That should never be torn apart. So if you're on the verge of making decisions like that or thinking that way, letting those thoughts creep into your head, it's not the Holy Spirit who's putting them there. 
It's Satan who's putting them there. Know that. And we come against the lies of the enemy right now that would seek to drive a wedge between Christian marriages, Christian and non-Christian marriages. I pray for them all. Lord, what you have joined together, let no one separate. No lie of the enemy should take hold. Father, I pray strengthening over those marriages that need it. I pray strengthening over those marriages who don't think they need it, because we all do. So Lord, I pray protection over all of those relationships that you have ordained, that they would be a reflection of your covenant with us forever, not easily broken, not taken lightly, but taken through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. And that's the only way that we can understand how much we mean to you and your purpose for us. So Father, any lie of the enemy right now, we rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So guys, we're gonna take communion together right now. If you need prayer, if you're in a place where you're just struggling with that idea, we have prayer team in the back. Look for a lanyard. If you're out there online, put it in the chat board. We will pray for you because marriages are under attack because that was God's plan and the enemy hates God's plan. He will do anything he can to destroy that. So go for some prayer back there. We can pray for you. We'll pray for you online. Get people to agree with you. And then when you're ready, let's take communion together. At the crosses, we have juice and you can serve yourself or we have wine up front. But take all the time that you need. If it's prayer, if it's repentance that needs to happen first, we can celebrate that through the blood of Christ, we are made new again. And no matter what mistakes or where our minds have been, we are new creations every day through his blood. Amen. Thank you, guys.